Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. My name is Rijk van and it's my weekly podcast where I speak to leading investment professionals. And my guest today is David Moore. He is Head of Alternative Investments at Alexander Forbes Investments. David, thank you so much for joining me. I always do a lot of research prior to an interview, but I'm afraid to say that I found very little public information regarding Alexander Forbes Alternative Investments. There seems to be very little information on the website, or at the very least, I couldn't find it if there is information, and it wasn't due to a lack of trying. First of all, where does Alexander Forbes Alternative Investments fit into the AF investment business? Hi, Rick, and thanks for having me. In the context of alternatives, maybe just to delineate what that category of investments really means, it's, it comprises two buckets, so hedge funds and private market assets. And in the context of the, I think the, the portfolio that we're going to maybe chat a little bit more about today, uh, private market assets, they really, they really sit within our delegated product solutions, so accessible by our clients. And so are really, you know, niche kind of unique offerings tailored to our clients' needs from both a return and or impact perspective, given the nature of the asset class. And how big is the team and, and how much uh, assets do you have under management? The product sits within the broader investment team, and that's 25-plus uh, people strong. I'm dedicated to, to the specific product and supported ably by our portfolio management and manager research team. So there's a, a couple of individuals on both sides of, of those fences that help, help me in the construction and development of the program. And the program as it stands today is just around 5 billion rand in terms of size and assets under management. I'm looking at the private markets portfolio fact sheet. You emailed it to me prior to the interview around 4.8 billion. And the targeted return CPI plus 7% before fees. Um, we can talk about fees later. Tell us about the performance of this fund over the last uh, few years. Yeah, sure. So, Rex, so we've We've really um, modeled it on, on providing our clients uh, returns that are stable, steady, and kind of a much lower volatility than I think that what they've experienced in the traditional asset classes, be it listed equity and the like. So it's really meant to, to give access to one, a pool of assets that you don't typically get on listed exchanges, so unlisted assets across private equity, unlisted credit, property, and infrastructure. And in so doing, by virtue of accessing these differentiated asset pools, you get a a different return series and a different return ride, so to speak. And so from a performance perspective, the program has done well since its inception in November 2017 and and had a great year last year achieving its CPI plus seven target. Of course, given COVID, 2020 has been a little bit more challenging, but nevertheless, it has fared very well relative to your traditional equity asset class, for example, where we've been marginally in the red, where I think your kind of equity index trackers have have taken much more pain over the over the last year or so. What is the risk profile of, of this fund? It's a blend. So in terms of the underlying asset categories, that dictates a lot of how we, we think about it. So we do have a bias to contractual returning assets. So things like um, large-scale infrastructure assets, so energy, wind, um, roads, and the like. And further to that, we look at unlisted debt and credits, so sort of fixed income type allocations. So it's, it's a blend of, say, equity and debt. It's looking to give you a moderate to good return outcome with taking not excessive risk. So we're not looking to, to put it all on red and be very aggressive in the, in the equity side of the spectrum and be much more focused on smooth, uncorrelated return outcomes. Yes, uh, around 38% of the funds is invested in infrastructure products. Tell us about these uh, infrastructure projects. 
the infrastructure component of the portfolio is quite diverse and it includes things that like large scale infrastructure, like your power assets, so solar, wind and the like, uh, toll roads, and also includes social infrastructure elements. So things like affordable housing, schooling and, and retirement accommodation. So it's a blend of kind of large scale and or niche infrastructure offerings. And, and these assets, as you know, are quite long dated in their time horizon, but they do suit our clients' risk profile nicely in that they're long dated at return generators at reasonably moderate risk and low volatility. So a nice mix of both return and social impact, given the nature of these assets. They deliver kind of on key social needs, be it you know, supplementing kind of the education sector in terms of de- delivery of affordable private schooling or provision of energy, which we, we all know we, we desperately need. Does that consist of loan funding or is there actually some private equity involved as well? It's a mix. So um, some of the, the underlying projects, we, by virtue of the managers we appoint in that sub-segment of the portfolio, we are equity holders in the underlying projects. But at the same time, we also look at participating in the debt. So it's a blend and it's blended in a way that kind of maximizes the, um, well, it's tailored to the ultimate return outcome that we're targeting and also kind of maximizes the liquidity profile that, uh, that you can get from this, this sub-strategy. ESG types of investments seem to be one of the flavors currently in investment markets. Uh, impact investments also up on that list. Uh, what has been the, the demand for investments in this fund? You're spot on, Rex. So ESG integration and investment process and being able to quantify the benefit of your investment over and above just a return on a piece of paper is very topical in front of mind, in both in the way that we've built this program and in, and in the mind of our clients. So we're very much integrating ESG in the way we, we diligence opportunities and managers and offerings and how we incrementally add and tweak this program. And further to that, we hold the underlying intermediaries that we allocate capital to, to book to report on the key metrics that demonstrate the impact of our, of our clients' capital. So be it the, the, the schools fund that, that invests in developed schools or the, um, the infrastructure provider that builds energy assets or the, or the debt manager that extends credit to SMEs and, and so doing creates jobs. So we, we actively report, quantify and measure the impact across the border program. Who are investing in this fund? Oh, sure. So it's predominantly institutional capital. So it's pension funds. So it's the and pension funds that you know, our underlying client base are private sector pensions and they ultimately are the, the underlying investor here. But at the same time, we are, we are working on scaling up the offering to be able to uh, offer it to more than just the institutional market. Yeah, that is interesting because in the past, alternative investments probably were seen as investments in art, old and vintage cars, maybe a a nice bottle of wine. It seems to me more private equity and and type of hedge funds or derivative products. Is that where it is heading? Yeah, I think under under Regulation 28, it's it's reasonably clearly defined. And that's kind of how we think of things, given our client base or, or pension funds. So... The Reg 28 defines it as hedge funds and or private equity. And private equity is obviously a subcomponent of, of, the, of the private markets universe because ultimately private markets comprises um, credit, infrastructure and private equity. So anything that's unlisted. And so those are the broad categories that kind of we manage our portfolios and, and products in line with and, and really kind of the industry accepted definition of alternatives, so to speak. 
I've seen several other asset managers also having alternative investment funds and, and divisions. Is this segment growing? Is it a popular segment for regular 28 fund managers? Yeah, Rick, I definitely think it is. I think there's a couple of reasons that, sort of, that are driving it. I think we we all know sort of the last five or so years in traditional equity in South Africa hasn't been great from a return perspective. And so you're seeing traditional asset classes with you know low interest rates and choppy equity returns being a little bit um, out of favor, so to speak, in terms of being the growth engine for retirees in, in terms of achieving inflation-linked outcomes from their portfolios. And so there's a renewed interest and increasing interest specifically in private assets, so allocating to private markets assets from both a return perspective, but furthermore, um, from, a, from a social good and social outcome perspective, we're finding member activism and members of pension funds being far more interested in in the social infrastructure asset that their capital has delivered, be it the school that's going to you know, allow their kids to be enrolled in once they retire, rather than just a, you know, a number on a retirement statement indicating your retirement benefit. So there's a lot of that behavior too. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. Investors feeling good about where they invest because it is making a difference. But on the the other hand, investors are also looking for yield. Are those two mutually exclusive? I think they are, Rick. And I think if you want to invest for impact and feel good, at the end of the day, for that to be sustainable, there needs to be a commercial underpin. So you have to structure structure your investments to make a, a sustainable commercial return in order to deliver lasting social good. And I think that's the way that, that kind of we think of things in the context of private markets and the underlying assets and managers that we allocate capital to is that it's commercial funding, but structured in a way that allows the ultimate um, beneficiary to be sustainable in terms of the underlying asset or portfolio company. But then at the same time, it's so doing it really can drive continued social outcomes. If I look at the fee structure, it seems expensive. The basic fee ranges from 1.75% to 1.95%. And uh, if you outperform, there's also uh, a performance fee of up to 20%. Is that pretty much the going rate for alternative investment fund? Yes. Yeah, so uh, look, I think the, the asset class is a little bit more expensive than your traditional asset classes. I think in the context of our product, so we actually don't charge any performance fees as a manager of managers. So in the context of our product, the underlying managers, some of them will attract performance fees, but typically those are based on quite onerous hurdles. So if they do achieve those hurdles and do achieve a performance fee outcome, then we should all be smiling. So we've structured it in a way that uh, the ultimate net return outcome to our client, should these performance fees be triggered, will be very, very good. And generally, the way that our fee structure works is because we don't charge a performance fee, we've also been able to scale the product and make it much more cost-effective for clients to access. So I think our you know, all-in fee is actually below that contractual range you've quoted as it stands today because we're actually aiming to, to give our clients a good net return outcome and, and ultimately get cost-effective access. And I think it's probably, as a product, one of the better price options out there. Yeah, that is expensive. But just in comparison, what is the relative size in South Africa compared to other asset classes compared to what is the case in other international markets? In terms of private market allocations in South Africa, at least in the institutional world, many larger pension funds have been quite progressive and allocated quite aggressively in the space. And that's a function of understanding the asset class and being able to bear some of the illiquidity risks that are associated with it, because these are ultimately unlisted investments, so you can't trade in and out of them like you can in listed equity. But in the context of 
smaller pension funds and more medium-sized pension funds and institutional investors, they're quite under-allocated to the asset class. And I think it's a function of a couple of those factors, illiquidity, education, and the like. But on the developed side, uh, developed world, and, and if you look further afield, alternatives have much higher allocations, permanent allocations under Reg 28. So in the South African context, you can do up to 15% of your fund in, in alternatives, where in many developed markets, that number is much higher, and many pension funds and institutional investors are hitting their threshold. So you know, certain markets, you can do up to 40% in alternatives, giving you a sense as to how, how much headroom there is to grow in the, in the South African context. While we were talking, I have looked at your cumulative performance graph included in the fund fact sheet. And it's actually very interesting. The fund has performed since inception around 5% per annum, uh, year to date minus 2.3%. But you compare it to the capped SWIX, of, uh, which is 9.8%. So it has definitely outperformed the capped SWIX. But your benchmark is, is CPI plus 7%. That is before fees. So if you take off the fees around CPI, plus 5%, and then if you take CPI at 3%, so you're looking at around an 8% target, which is probably in the current market pretty ambitious. But what's clear to me is that the performance is a lot more stable than the capped SWIX. The capped SWIX took a massive hit this year, like I think many indices. It definitely should be in a portfolio because of uh, probably a, a stable return, but the performance seems to be... Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Eric, in terms of stability of return. And we're not we're not looking to be rock stars here and achieve CPI plus 10, 15%. I think in this environment, as you said, 8% is even ambitious. So can you get to those numbers easily? Probably not. Can you get there you're taking a lot of risk? Yes. That's not what we're in the business of doing. We're looking to structure something that is complementary to our to our clients' portfolios that gives you an element of stability and low correlation. Yes, we'd love to be able to say we're hitting CPI plus seven year on year consistently, but and unfortunately this year has been a rough ride, but nevertheless we've been reasonably resilient. But the aim is to provide kind of a smooth, uncorrelated return. And that's really by asset selection and manager selection that drive that. So, you know, infrastructure assets, for example, lend themselves to that return categorization. And because you don't have any proxy in the traditional world for large scale infrastructure assets and what they return and how they perform you typically get a nicer, kind of a, a smoother ride, so to, so to speak, from a return perspective. And if you add credit to the mix there too, you know, you add contractual return series to, to different return series, you end up kind of getting a, a smoother return outcome. But why CPI plus 7%? From the graph, it doesn't seem as if you have achieved that during the period since inception in October 2017. Why CPI plus 7 well, I think from the perspective of the illiquidity of the product, there is an element of we want to be paying our clients commensurately for the illiquidity risk they're bearing. So CPI plus seven is an outcome that makes sense relative to traditional asset classes, at least when this program was initiated. In terms of its performance, 2019 was actually a really good year for the product and it actually achieved its, its CPI plus seven gross outcome. However, it's uh, regressed somewhat given 2020, but we continue to aspire to get that, that return outcome given that this is a liquid asset class and there is an element of money being tied up and it's not that you can sell and get out tomorrow. So we want to you know, get clients an appropriate return for that illiquidity and or length of commitment. David, thanks so much for your time today. That was David Moore. He's Head of Alternative Investments at Alexander Forbes Investments.